Well, we continue our Mark series, so go ahead, grab your Bibles, open them up at Mark chapter 11 as we seek to finish this chapter off in Mark's Gospel account. Now, last week, we considered Jesus in the temple, and we considered how the fig tree was a picture of what was happening in the temple courts. There was a lot of religious show, but there was no real fruit of faithfulness before God. We had these dramatic scenes of Jesus tossing the tables and driving out the money changers, for he sought this Gentile court to be a place of prayer rather than a den of robbers. And what we learnt is that we could so often be like that den of robbers, praising the name of Jesus, yet in the next moment sinning and really showing an unholiness before God. Therefore, we learnt that we need to humbly come before God, repent from our sins and transform our hearts by the renewing of our mind in Jesus Christ so that we would be more like Jesus and less like the sinners that we are. Now, as we come to today's passage, we learn of the authority of Jesus being challenged. In seeking to bring the, the demise of Jesus, the religious leaders are caught by the truth and the unexpected words of Jesus because their hope is that Jesus would be arrested and he would be dealt with and all normality could resume. But in Jesus' unexpected response, that plan goes haywire. Now, as we come to today's passage, I want you to see a really important truth. Pursuit of biblical truth needs to come with a open heart, a willingness to learn and a willingness to change. Pursuit of biblical truth needs to come with an open heart, a willingness to learn and a willingness to change. As we come to the word of God in an appropriate manner, the truth not only sets us free, but it sets us on a course of holiness and righteousness. And we want truth, we want holiness, we want to be righteous before God. And so this passage and the principles we learn from it are incredibly important to the daily life of the Christian. And so we're going to head into our Bibles looking at Mark chapter 11 and we'll take one verse at a time starting from verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now remember a day before this passage Jesus is in the temple tossing tables driving out the money changers and teaching about the house of prayer in this Gentile court. The next day, he's now returned to the temple. He's near that Gentile court, but he's in a different area of the temple. Now, there is two great cloisters in the temple, one to the east called Solomon's Court and one to the south called the Royal Cloister. In verse 27, we have Jesus in this southern royal cloister. It was made up of four rows of white marble columns, 162 in total, with an ornate shelter protecting everyone from the wind, sun and rain. It's a fairly grand setting and rabbis were known to stroll along these columns, teaching as they went. So here we have Jesus in this grand setting, just a stone's throw away from where he was the day before driving out these money changers. And he's teaching and expounding the scriptures to all those who are around him. Now, as we've seen this week in our daily reading program, yes, miracles and healings and casting out demons are really phenomenal ministry, but there is nothing like teaching the word of God, teaching scriptures. As it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. Jesus was teaching, correcting and training in the ways of God and it's a vital part of his ministry and that's why we see him the next day in the temple courts in this royal cloister teaching scriptures. Now, during this teaching, Jesus is approached by the leaders of the temple. Note here we have the chief priests, 
who were high-ranking priests. We have the scribes, who essentially were temple clerks who would write and rewrite the law on a daily basis. And then we have the elders. These were adult men who were responsible for making the local decisions. Now combined together, this group made up the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the highest legal body in the temple. It was made up of 71 members from both religious and political persuasions. And before going even further into the next passage, you can just tell they are unlikely to be friendly before Jesus. Remember, Jesus has wrecked their temple marketplace. He's destroyed their profitable gains. And here they come as the Sanhedrin, the highest legal body before Jesus. This is unlikely to be a friendly contact. Verse 28. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? These leaders wanted justification for the actions of Jesus the day before. Where did he get this authority to behave in such a way? By whose commission was this marketplace challenged? The leaders were not only uh, looking for a paper trail about what happened, they were looking for a way to trap Jesus. They wanted to catch Jesus and ultimately arrest him. They would arrest him for breach of the peace as a madman if he was acting on his own, or they would arrest him for blasphemy if he dared say that he had a higher authority for his actions. The question isn't necessarily wrong as to where the authority came from, but the motivation truly showed what was going on in the hearts of these leaders. Remember their true reaction the day before in the temple scenes, Mark 11, 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They wanted Jesus destroyed, they wanted their temple back, and they wanted the loyalty of the crowd. So a trap was set, and in their arrogance, they approached Jesus in this royal cloister. Verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Not quite the answer you would expect from Jesus, is it? In fact, Jesus doesn't answer the question at all. He sets before them a proposition. If they can answer his question, then he'll show them by what authority his actions can be justified. The question, what was the baptism of John? Was it divinely ordained or was it man-made? Was it given by God or was John acting on his own behalf? You see, if you dig a little bit deeper and step back from this question and kind of see the whole picture here, Jesus was actually giving the leaders an opportunity to not only correct their thinking about John, but also to recognise that the one who gave John the authority also gives Jesus the authority, that being the creator God. And so really, if you just step back a little bit from uh, this one line, this one question, Jesus is giving an opportunity here for them to come to the truth. Now remember, John came to prepare the way for Jesus. John baptised for repentance, preparing the hearts for the good news of Jesus. And if you have a right view of John, then it's not much of a leap to have a right view of Jesus. Because John was the messenger who would prepare the way for the Messiah. So if you have John as the messenger, then it's not much of a leap to have Jesus as the Messiah. Now before we look at the reaction of the leaders, I want you to note the last two words of verse 30. Answer me. Jesus commanded an answer. It wasn't get back to me. It wasn't uh, go and tell me what you think. It was answer me. It was a one-time statement. It was a command. And this was even showing the authority of Jesus. Answer me because I have asked you a question. 
And we're all ultimately called to respond to Jesus. There's no ifs, there's no buts. When Jesus asks a question, he expects a response. So when he asks the question, here am I, will you take me as your saviour? Will you recognise the truth? He demands an answer. And the answer can only ever be no or yes, or confirming the truth or denying the truth. Verse 31. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say, from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say, from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. You can just imagine the scene here, can't you? Jesus is teaching this crowd in the royal grand cloister, and he's interrupted. He's challenged with a question. And before him, these leaders were sent off to consider a question that Jesus gave. So here they are in a huddle, in full view of all the crowd and Jesus, discussing how they should respond. Now, some might think it's really good to take time. It's, it's really wise to take time before such an important question. And I think you would be correct here. But this discussion as to how they would answer actually shows how the leaders have completely missed the point and are no longer acting for God, but for themselves. They should already know the answer. They should have confidence in who John is and who Jesus is. They know the scriptures. They know the Old Testament. They know the prophecies. They should know the answer. But instead, they go into a huddle and try and figure a way out here. They came up with two answers. The first is to acknowledge that John had got his authority from heaven. In other words, John the Baptist was indeed the forerunner to Jesus, and he was divinely chosen to prepare the way for Jesus. The issue with this answer, however, was that it, they hadn't believed in John in the first place. And so why hadn't they? Why did he end up in prison silence? Why did he end up being martyred and treated like a criminal? If they gave Jesus this answer, they would have some tough questions to answer regarding their previous unbelief. Now, the other answer was to say that John was a self-produced man. His authority came from himself and there was no divine inspiration behind it. The problem with this answer was that the popular view amongst the crowd was that John was a prophet, a spokesperson for God, bringing a specific message and one that involved baptism by repentance. Consider Luke 26. But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. In Luke's account, we see that the main issue to the answer here was fear. The leaders feared they would be stoned to death for suggesting that John was not a prophet. You see, the, the, the leaders here were not interested in the truth. They were interested in what would make them look good. They, they thought that Jesus was trapping them. So all they could see was this in terms of a trap. They were not considering the moral implication as to what is right and what is wrong. They were only considering the selfish motives of their hearts, thinking what is a safe and an unsafe answer. They just wanted their own safety and their own pride to be shown as real, true leaders of the time. Further to this, though, they didn't want Jesus to win, to get one up on them and somehow some have this verbal victory amongst the crowd. Jesus was twisting the situation and so they couldn't figure out what to answer. In the end, we read of their response in verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Uh, due to being at a lose-lose situation, the leaders took the cowardly way out and simply said they don't know. And of course they did, but they just refused to declare what the truth was, not only about John, 
but about Jesus as well. And I really do love the response of Jesus. He pretty much just says, conversation over. No more conversation, not willing to talk with you, not willing to go down this road. For they were showing their hearts. They had no interest in the truth. They're self-condemned in their stubbornness and Jesus won't entertain it any further. You see, this was not a trap. It was an opportunity to see Jesus for who he truly was. And sadly, the religious leaders refused to even acknowledge the opportunity. Remember John 8, 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus was guiding these leaders to the truth and in so doing, he was seeking them to be free from religious legalism and to life, live life to the full in Jesus. But sadly, rejecting the truth, they condemned themselves to be slaves to legalism and lose out on the freedom that Christ was offering before them. What a disastrous moment for the religious leaders, but what a triumph for Jesus. For he knew what the truth was and he knew that he was leading crowds to the truth. And one day he would indeed be the Messiah and he would come to that death on the cross and set people free through the blood of Christ. Now, as we take these words uh, from Mark 11 and apply them to our own lives, we need to think about some key questions that come out from the passage. Number one, what are our motivations? What are our motivations? Uh, Jesus called these leaders out for he knew their motivations were for selfish gain. There was no desire for the truth, no desire to humble themselves before Jesus, no desire to lose face in this standoff. And the main issue was the motivation of self. Watchman Nee once said, the flesh makes self the centre and elevates self-will above God's will. It may serve God, but always according to its idea, not according to God's. It will do what is good in its own eyes. Self is the principle behind every action. What are our motivations? Do you come before God? And yes, you may do the things for God, but really only in the way that you think is right. Do you elevate your thinking to be on par with the word of God? Do you do things or get involved in things only to benefit yourself rather than that of others? These are some tough questions that need to be asked because the greatest example of what it means to live a life with sacrificial and selfless motivations is that of Jesus, who willingly came to this earth, willingly suffered, willingly was put to death and willingly was crucified to bring about God's rescue plan for his people. And let's be honest, no one, no one of us, not, not a single person watching or listening this sermon has a level of selfless sacrificial motivation like we see in Jesus. Yet in all of us, we are called by God to live in that selfless and sacrificial way. Philippians 2 teaches us the opposite of what the religious leader's behaviour was. It teaches us to put others before ourselves and to think of others more highly than ourselves. So really a blunt question today. Are you selfish? Do you put yourself before others? Do you seek personal gain rather than the will of God? Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, get over yourself. 
Get over what you think, what you know. Get over what you behave like and recognise that this week your thoughts, your actions and your speech should be all for Jesus and therefore selfless and sacrificial. We need to kill those selfish desires through the power of the Holy Spirit and seek to be focused on Jesus, on others and the humility of being a servant before God. If you want to look at these religious leaders in this passage, that is the opposite of what we should be behaving like. We should not act for self. We should not try and trap others so that we gain. We should not be thinking of our popularity. We should be thinking of Jesus, loving God, loving others, and we should be thinking about the gospel and how it will impact as we share. And so the question boils down to, are you selfish or are you selfless? Number two, who do you get authority from and who do you give it to? Who do you get authority from and who do you give it to? I really found myself labouring on this question this week. For the religious leaders, they wanted the authority. They kind of built it up within themselves and they held on to the authority themselves. For Jesus, he already knew where his authority came from, the creator God. Yet it goes deeper than that. It speaks of an ultimate higher authority, one who we will all answer to, one whom we will be guided by and one whom we'll all be accountable to. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is a before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you see how all things are in, through and for Jesus? He has the ultimate authority. The triune God, the creator himself has authority over all things. He has the authority and he gives the authority. And here is the question. Do we allow or do we give the authority to God? Or do we give it to other things in our lives? Recently, social media use has skyrocketed and the use of news apps and news programmes are almost done on a daily occurrence. And we have this mentality, if it's said on Facebook or if it's said on the news, then it must be true. We begin to give it authority, slowly listening to other voices, slowly letting other voices kind of command our lives. In the Christian world, opinion is often given the authority. Someone's opinion sounds right, it even seems spiritual, it's shouted the loudest, it's more palatable. And then we begin to become guided by it because we give those opinions authority. Worse still though, is when self becomes our authority. We, we define what is right and what is wrong. We define how we should live and how we shouldn't live. We become the centre of the universe, giving ourselves authority. But Proverbs 3.5 is important. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Our understanding of the cosmos is so insignificant compared to God and his understanding. Facebook, news apps, your best friend, your family, yourself is nothing compared to the understanding, wisdom and authority of God. And we're commanded to not lean on these worldly understandings. Instead, we're to trust the Lord. The religious leaders in Mark 11 leaned on their own understanding and they looked like fools. I'm assuming that we don't want to look like a fool. 
The issue is if we keep seeking the authority of social media to news, to friends, to even ourselves, then we are going to look foolish when we stand before the Supreme Lord Jesus on Judgment Day and say, I didn't do it because, well, someone on Facebook said it, or I behaved like that way because, well, I thought it was the right thing to do. We will look foolish before the Holy God as he stands before us and we stand before him and he judges us on Judgment Day when he says, the word of God is before you. My ways are true. My authority should have guided you. What were you doing? Friends, in this season, more than any other, trust the Lord and give him authority over your life. Don't make decisions on a whim. Hear the voice of God and follow his guidance. This week, consider what God wants you to do and then jump in feet first in obedience. Have confidence because if authority comes from God and we give God that authority, then he will guide us into what he wants and then we can have confidence in every decision and in every aspect of our lives. Doubt and confusion is bred from taking the authority away from God and putting it onto worldly things. Why? Genesis 3. Because the serpent brought doubting questions into the world. Doubt and confusion comes from the kingdom of this world, comes from Satan, where confidence and assurance and authority comes through the creator God. Friends, give God the authority over your life and let him guide you into every action of every day. Number three, has the truth set you free? Has the truth set you free? The religious leaders thought they would be uh, clever and somehow trap Jesus. Their sinful motivations, though, trapped their own hearts into this legalistic condemnation. And John 14, 6 reminds us that there is only one truth. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only truth. And through Jesus, there is only one life to be given. The leaders forfeited that life when they rejected the truth of Jesus. More and more people need to know that Jesus is the truth because they're being deceived by this world, by some false teaching. We need to tell them that Jesus is the truth. I've consistently said this. If you're in a church that isn't proclaiming Jesus with every breath, then you need to stay well clear of that church. Because today I only have one truth to preach and that is Jesus. I only have one truth to teach and that is Jesus. I only have one truth and it has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with anything I can conjure up. For the truth is Jesus and Jesus alone. And therefore, true life can only be given by Jesus. And that truth we here at Lincoln Baptist will preach all day long for we are firmly in belief that the power of transformation to change people's lives comes from the truth of Jesus, comes from the gospel message of Jesus. Tell me, have you met Jesus? Do you know this truth? Have you been set free and transformed by the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to save sinners, to bridge that gap that it was created by sin? And before I close today, I just want to give a word of warning from 1 Timothy chapter 1. I charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from what God, that is, by faith. We will have nothing to do with myths, speculations or false doctrine here at Lincoln Baptist We'll preach the truth, we'll teach the truth, we'll sing the truth, we'll stand upon the truth. We will be everything about the truth, which is to say that we're going to be everything about Jesus. 
And the warning is very clear here in 1 Timothy. Anyone who would dare speak anything contrary to Jesus and sound doctrine, causing others to be led astray, well, you have no place here. As Jesus said, the, the temple was a house of prayer. Well, let me say this here at Lincoln Baptist. We will be a house of truth. And that truth is Jesus. Friends, come to Jesus. Be set free by the truth. Give him the authority over your life. And as you do so, watch how your heart motivations change from being selfish to selfless as you love God and love others. I want to close with a few words from Steph McLeod and a song entitled, When I Found Jesus. When I found Jesus, he was heavy on my heart. I was lost for words and didn't know where to start. All I know is I believe more than that I did receive. For my sins were paid by the loving blood of Jesus. He took the weight off my shoulders. He gave me rest. He gave me peace from my troubles. Oh Lord, I have been blessed. Do you know Jesus? Has he set you free into new life? I pray that not only will you meet Jesus today, not only will you commit your life to Jesus and give him the authority, but you will be truly transformed from the inside out and your motivations will be all for Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for the time we've had today at delving into what seemingly is just a passage of conversation between leaders and Jesus. But what we see is this wonderful truth that God has the authority and he has the ability through Jesus to forgive our sins. And so, Father, we pray that we would give Jesus the authority over our lives, that we would be transformed, that our motivations would be for you. And Father, that we would be set free to live life to the full through Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would stand strong on the truth of Jesus, that we won't waver into false doctrine or myths or genealogies. Father, we pray that we would be rock solid on the rock that is Jesus. And Father, for anyone watching here today, for anyone listening into this sermon, if they've not yet met Jesus, Father, we pray right now that you would guide them to come before King Jesus, humble themselves, repent and seek forgiveness in his name. And Father, for Christians, we pray that daily we will carry our cross, we'll deny ourselves and we'll live for you. For Father, we pray that your kingdom would expand and that many would come to know you as Lord and Saviour. And we pray one day we will all sing and shout in that glorious heavenly realm and it will all be worth it for King Jesus is on the throne. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.